the subject of the evening talk is truth for truth's sake. You're probably familiar with the story of Gautama Siddhartha who was a, a prince of an insignificant little kingdom in northern India two and a half thousand years ago and who found in himself a stirring in his heart to want to know what the truth is. Nothing more and nothing less than that. And it became a, an overwhelming priority in his life. Just as it has been for men and women before him, during his own time, and subsequent to that time. And the quest for truth can be born of many motives. It can be born of the inherent feeling of dissatisfaction and within, of pain and sorrow. It can, be, it can be born of a questioning mind. It can be born of a doubt in, in society's values and attitudes. It can be born of a certain intuitive apprehension of something other than what is apparent. Regardless of the motive, different people for different reasons give time, care, attention and energy to finding out what the truth is. All too easily, of course, and all too quickly, truth becomes a set of ideas, some kind of belief system or structure involving some organization, some institution or whatever. And then truth, as it so to speak, becomes merely a, a system of thought, system of ideas. and then remove from what truth is. For example, there may be a conclusions in certain religions of a creator and a creation. And some may claim that is the absolute truth of things. Or in another system of thought or ideas, a theory is established of evolution, the law of and the law of survival. And this becomes the truth of things. Or in yet another system where we are regarded as being 
modify our lives and our minds being simply modified and shaped by external stimuli. It becomes another conclusion, another idea of what truth is. And yet again, where the view is formed that there is no choice, there's no element of choice, and we are determined, totally determined creatures or beings by circumstances, by forces which are not with us or not under our control, or views and opinions formulated with regard to having total free choice, free will. And I'm sure at some time or other, you and I, in some circumstance, or in some situation in our conversations or with our thoughts, have lent on those conclusions, so to speak. We've promoted them. We've kind of tried to prove a certain argument by a certain set of thoughts or ideas or beliefs which you, we have formulated. And I'm sure you would, would agree that, to, at least to some extent, the most thoughts about existence and conclusions which are drawn, there is something which sounds reasonable about them. And that reasonableness, in one degree or other, whether it's of the scientific materialist or the religious person or whatever, those set of uh, beliefs and ideas sound reasonable, but it's a perspective. It's a particular position, a particular way of looking at things. And in looking in a particular way, in a specialized way, using thought, interpreting experience and so forth, is not to see things in their totality. And for that, we need to see in another way altogether. Let us just very simply look at what this truth, what it means really with regard to truth for truth's sake. And to find truth in life and to know truth in life, at one level, a very important level, really it's learning to live with it. It's learning to live with truth in life, learning to live with the truth of actualities in life. And if we look just briefly this evening at our own situation and see how in different ways we've begun in a situation of living in so much which is false, so much which is artificial, so much which is empty and superfluous and without any meaning whatsoever. And seeing from that how we can move and hopefully are moving towards seeing things more clearly, seeing things in terms of their actualities within existence and yet again transcending that also. The traditional analogy for this is that there are certain beings who are running up and down on one shore, 
or running up and down on a series of at the top of some steps. And this is a situation for the mind which is spellbound, we might say, in its own delusions of confusion, selfishness, aggression, violence, and all manner of projections which are directed onto the world around and in which the world around is concluded in ordinary everyday life to be like this or to be like that. And this is to live in a false and unreal way. For example, we can live our, live our life and we can attribute so much to what happens around us. And we can see and hear things which are untrue. Have you ever listened to some music? Have you ever listened to a person talking to you? Have you ever watched a, a program on the TV or whatever and you say, oh that music is so boring. That show is really quite dreadful. This, this person really gets my back up. And in living in that way, and in living with that kind of perception, or it's in the opposite extreme of how wonderful this is, how fantastic, how great, or whatever, the mind is seeing and listening to its own self. It's not seeing what is fact, what is actual out there, but it's, it attributes the, something to what is there. And the mind, in its ignorance and in its stupidity says this music is boring or this this person gets my back up or whatever it may be and we attribute all manner of things in that way we attribute to the world around us as as being the source of our as our pleasures of our pleasures and our pains of our joys and our sorrows this is not to be in touch with the real world. It's not to be in touch with actuality. But it's to be living within the movement of the mind. And when we begin to recognize that in a very simple everyday way, we can see and question and look at the degree in which our own mind influences and shapes and fashions the way we approach anything, and everything in life and begin to be aware of that movement of mind. In the same way in life and in this whole field of, ex of experience of, of living we tend all too quickly to draw these conclusions and all too quickly the conclusions which we draw about things outwardly or about things inwardly, that is, ourselves, actually again have very little foundation, very little, very little truth in them. And one of the things which we draw and we kind of conclude quite strongly, which seems to me goes very much unquestioned, is the concept of I as a person who is a kind of agent 
in this field of existence. And I initiate actions, I engage in a variety of, of activities, and engaging in those varieties of activities, I feel I do this. And I look around me and I see numerous other human beings and I read the newspapers and I hear what is being said, etc., etc. And it would, would seem, with regard to this, that everyone else is in similar agreement. Namely, the feeling, the notion, the concept, or whatever, I am the doer, I am the actor, I am the experiencer or initiator of actions, and I suffer the consequences, pleasure or pain. And everybody talks like this, thinks like this, acts like this, believes like this, and as a result of that, by common agreement, so to speak, we think it's the truth. We don't question it because so few other people question these, these standpoints. They seem axiomatic, self-evident or whatever, and they go unquestioned. I wonder why that is. Why is it? Why is it that the mind, in numerous different ways, as it were, lives with conclusions, lives with ideas, lives with falsehood in numerous ways and neglects to the quest for truth, neglects that quest to find out what the truth is for the truth's sake. It's a li little bit like, isn't it, conclusions which were drawn about how about the world itself. And when we look at the world, we come to see and know that our, what we see, in fact, and what we hear, and so forth, cannot reliably tell us how things are. And even just taking that in a very simple way, in that if you open your eyes, and you, you look around you, and you see these numerous particulars, which make up the world. And in your looking like that, you would be rather obliged, based on the sense data available, to say, the stars shine. Because that is how it seems to be. You look up there in the night sky and the stars seem to shine as though they have a light. But in, if you were to go up there and get closer to it, it would obviously not be like that. If you look outside this window, here, or look upstairs, you look out, and you'd rather be forced to the conclusion that the world is flat. Because your eyes tell you that, and apart from a few bumps here and there, if you kept on walking, it would always appear to be flat. You might conclude that this world is the centre of the universe. But we know, we come to see through a in this case, access to other knowledge, that this isn't so. In the quest for truth, in the quest to, to find out what the truth is, it's, as it were, progressively, we might say, by the way of negation, meaning to see what is false, to see in our life what is an assumption, 
and being free inwardly, and this is the mark of a mature human being, being free inwardly to, que to question numerous assumptions. And in the quest or the seeing into numerous assumptions and seeing through what is false, the truth reveals itself. Which cannot be formulated into a set of ideas and beliefs. It cannot be, be organized. doesn't belong to you, doesn't belong to me, doesn't belong to, to anybody. So what area, what area might we as human beings look into and, and see where we have certain notions? Where we have fixed certain standpoints which seem again so self-evident like a fat, flat earth and stars shining? And look at those areas carefully. One area of many areas is the whole conception of continuity. And this, the mind, through its kind of ruts and through its patterns which it has made, has formulated a strong conception of some sort of continuity. And our whole language and our whole expression tends, so to speak, to reinforce this idea. And in our very society, the concept or the clinging to continuity carries with it, so often, uh, a kind of contemporary notion of evolvement, of evolution. And we see that in one level, a certain technical sophistication and so forth. But one wonders, is there any real evolution in human beings? We only have to look at this century to see, to question that. Is the human mind evolving, coming to greater maturity, peace, love, awareness, wisdom, understanding, intelligence? Is there any evidence for it? Just casting the mind's eye over this century alone to make one question one accepted form of concept and conception of existence prevalent in the culture. And we see that just that type of conception of evolution seems to me to have an, a, almost a mythical quality to it. And when, and when we do that, if we come back to our own existence and the way that we look at our own existence, we give it a continuity. And we become fixed in this idea of a continuity. And anything which threatens that continuity brings about tremendous emotion, tremendous upset and agitation. Because we don't look at the idea of continuity. Awareness with life is moving away from many of the false ascriptions to it 
and being a little bit more closely in touch with actualities. Moving away from false ascriptions, one of them, of many again, is where we attribute in life great beauty and ugliness to something. It's one thing to, appre to, to, to appreciate. It's one thing to appreciate that, that the flower which is coming up in the, in the spring, to, to appreciate a, a, a tree, to appreciate the day, to appreciate the night, to appreciate the sun, to appreciate the fog, to appreciate a person, the face, or whatever. But that appreciation and that acknowledgement is a simple bare recognition of something. But when the mind comes in with its movement and projects onto that, it creates an unreality. Oh, how fantastic, how beautiful that is, how, how extraordinary that is. And for somehow or other there seems to be a need for human beings to agree. Not to, to, to be, because of, because of the fear of standing apart and saying, well, I'm not sure. How many people go to, go to an art gallery, look at a piece of sculpture, and because the person's name on it is famous and well known, the minds have to conform to it so readily and so quickly and attribute great beauty to it. Even though we may not see it. We may not be aware of that. Is it out there in that case? Is it out there? And why is it that we lack the strength and the courage to look and see for ourselves to look and see basically what is true for ourselves. Why are we so often weak-minded with regard to that? Because if we're going to know truth for truth's sake, this kind of integrity and on inner honesty in life, in our existence, is absolutely necessary. If you see something is false and you really see something is clearly false with integrity in life you can't live with it. I'm sure you must have had that experience. Some of us have had whatever it might be in the field of politics and seeing that one's efforts in the field of politics and and political action, and feeling utterly, thoroughly disillusioned with it, through religion and religious forms and religious traditions and all, all of that, and looking at that and, and seeing how much of it is so false and having to throw it off one's back like a, because it felt and was experienced like having an albatross hanging from one's back. So awareness in life, in simple things in life, is seeing as clearly as possible 
in simple ways, what, what seems to be true for oneself. Where we project outwardly onto things <coughs> and make something there which isn't there. And again, when we stop and look and slow down and, and become a little more aware in life, we see what is referred to in Dharma terminology as the three characteristics of existence. And the, the three characteristics of existence are, so to speak, the three marks which make up existence. And one of them is the fact in life, in the conventional world, of not of continuity, but discontinuity. Not of longevity in any way whatsoever, but of an actuality of life, of one thing changing and becoming something else at the moment-to-moment -moment level. And when we look at life, we can see that in our own various ways, in our own field of experience. Health becomes sickness, sickness becomes health. A change which is taking place. Gain becomes loss. Having becomes losing. Praise with regard to something becomes blame. An affirmation of something later changes, modifies, often in the same day and becomes a, a rejection, a denial of something. And we see this modification or change taking place in numerous ways in the world around us, within ourselves, in our own minds and physically too an actuality of existence. And when we're not so much bound or tied to the notion of continuity, we become aware, extraordinarily aware, deeply aware of change. And so quickly, isn't it, that again, in the movement of our mind, with regard to change, we again ascribe something to it. So when something as difficult has happened to in our life and there's been a certain amount of change which has come, the situation was there, it appeared in time, it passed in time, and, and, we're, and it's over, and it's been a d difficult time, we feel glad, oh, thank goodness for change. Change, really change is so good, it's really so so necessary, or, or whatever it might be. I'm glad I've got over that. And we attribute again onto change all manner of things which are not in change themselves. And we come to believe that's the truth. We believe what we, what we project. And similarly in the opposite way, when things are, are going, going very well and very very smoothly, and everything's just right, and we've, and we've got our poor little world for ourselves, all nicely, neatly organized. 
and we think, yes, everything is just going right, I've got everything just as I want it to be, I've got a nice job and a nice relationship and a nice little apartment, and it's all nicely set up. And then it changes. And then we say, well, why has it changed? Why do things have to change? This change is terrible. Everybody is, everybody is changing, everything is changing. Oh, it's so insecure, or whatever it might be. And, we, and then change again becomes a kind of threat in some way or other. And we don't see change, the actuality, the bare fact of it. Because we're so easily caught up with the perception of continuity. and it isn't to be found. And as I say, truth for truth's sake, at the actual conventional level in this world of things, is learning to live with that fact. Learning to live with that at every single level of our being. Change itself is neither good nor bad nor indifferent. It's the way things are, the actuality of how things are in life. The very change itself, because things are constantly modifying, owing to the fact that things are rising and, and ceasing, the very character of that means, from the standpoint of an aspect of existence, that it's rather an unsatisfactory state of affairs. It's unsatisfactory in that the identification with this change is blinding. You see? Do you see that? The world has become, so to speak, through the movement of thought, the movement of mind, has become, so to speak, chopped up, chopped up in, into numerous bits and pieces. And these numerous bits and pieces make up our world. And this is what we call the world. And out of these numerous bits and pieces we form a world picture, which we call life. And through the taking a hold or the identification with the picture particulars which make up our world view, through the taking a hold of, hold of that, we see only impermanence. And the seeing only of impermanence, though free, freeing from one position, meaning that let go of so much which is mundane and so much which is foolish and grasping, at another level becomes a form of identification. See that? Ordinary mind caught in its selfishness and in its aggression and in its holding and its clinging and so on and so forth forms all manner of views and opinions about this, that, that and the other. Formulates ideas, accumulates beliefs. When we let go of all of that, all of that assemblage of mental activity, when we let go of that, 
and we begin to look at the bare actualities of life, the bare facts of life as they show themselves to us, without formulating numerous conclusions, we see change. We see change mentally, we see change physically, we see change environmentally. We, th we see things appearing and passing in time. But the taking, even that, though valuable though it may be as a certain freeing factor in life, the taking hold of that is unsatisfactory because it blinds us to the truth which is beyond change. And again, in these characteristics of existence, there is this impermanence in this world of appearances, this world of conventional living. There is this impermanence, there is this factor of unsatisfactoriness because the identification with the impermanence is blinding. And there is this other element which is called, which is a difficult concept for most people to understand, not self. In this concept which you surely have heard in Buddhist language or terminology or no self, it is sometimes spoken of. And what is meant, what are we referring to when we speak like that? You see if a person says, as some people do, who are kind of believers rather than people who are looking and seeing, a person who just believes says, oh, there's no self. And it's kind of thr th thrown, up, thrown, up, thrown up in the air. A person has never stopped to question what, what this, what this means. And the person is in the ridiculous position of somehow or other trying to refute their own existence. Saying, I am not here. Well, to anybody with a scrap of intelligence it sounds <laughs> incredibly stupid. And if you say it to the wrong person you know where you end up. All right. <laughs> So what does it mean, this concept of not-self? If we look at the situation, the bare situation of our own life, please, just looking at the bare situation of our own life, how do we build up our identity? Through what is the building up of an identity? And through the building up of an identity, there is the formation of me. And this building up of an identity with the formation of me gives one, gives me, the sense of being a true reality. And what we build up our identity through is simple enough through body through feelings through emotions through perceptions through intentions through thoughts through consciousness and through that assemblage of that we build up a sense of me and we think this is the truth of things. We don't stop, no questioning, just everybody agrees with that, it's whatever, and therefore I agree. 
But if we actually stop and actually, actu and, the, and there is the actual looking, things like that assumption which is made may not seem quite so real or authentic as it may have appeared. How might there be the seeing of that? How might there be the questioning of that assumption? If you take it in, a, in a, a, an external way first, quite often we look at we look at a situation. Someone around us is is be acting in a particular way or whatever. A person is being very angry. A person is being confused. A person is um, excited or whatever it may be. And we kind of think or feel or conclude that there is this anger and there is a person behind this anger who is kind of responsible for the anger. And so we, 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 set, we direct possibly reaction, we direct blame or criticism or whatever to, and what we say to that person. I wonder if there's just the fact of anger taking place. In the process and in the conditions and in the movement of life, there is the fact of anger. And to ascribe someone, somehow or other, who's behind it, is going too far. I wonder too whether or not there is another way that we might look at things to what we call our own selves. And just to, to see more clearly with regard to that, with regard to the awareness of body, in which we, through identification of this impermanent phenomena, we say, I am sick. I am healthy, I am young, I am old, fat, thin, etc., and yet we see through awareness and through meditation that the object, that the body is an object in the field of consciousness. And what is an object in the field of consciousness, in other words, what there is the seeing of, why call it yourself? What you observe, what you can see directly, experience directly as an object, why call it yourself? Because if you can do that with your knee, why don't you do it with your front door at home? Why don't you do it with your, the zafu, which you experience as an object? Why don't you do it with the tree? And if we can see that cl clearly, and, and again and again, so we see that very very clearly, then suddenly this concept, not-self, takes on a little meaning. Maybe something which is in line with the actuality of things. And in the same way, too, in a similar way, or in the same way, even that which is, as it were, closer or appears closer, that is mental activity and the whole process of that. Is it just that there is the fact of a feeling, there is the fact of an emotion, 
there is a fact of an idea, there is a fact of an intention taking place. And you can see that. My goodness me, you've been coming upstairs and saying often enough. Oh, there's this, this feeling has come up, this emotion has come up, this, this thought, these thoughts are running every, everywhere. And, and you say, well, how do, how do you know that? Well, in ordinary language, you say, oh, I can see it. That which can be seen, why ascribe it as being yourself? Why say, this is me? That emotion which is observable, that feeling which is observable, that, that pattern of ideas which is observable. If it wasn't observable, you wouldn't know it. And again, a little bit more clear seeing and a little bit more understanding from coming about what not-self really is. And through that almost one might say wealth of mental and physical activity, it takes place because the conditions and the process and the movement of life allows that process to take place. And to be aware, to see that process which is taking place. And we know that through the identification with that process, the concept of self is built up. And not only is it built up, but according to the conditions, the idea of it increases and decreases. Someone comes to you and, and says your name, whoever you are, whatever you are. You say, say yes. Or if someone asks you, who are you? And you say, well, I'm so and so. And through that you express a express your name and there's a certain identification with, with that name or whatever. And you say, well, I'm male or I'm female and I was born here, and etc., etc. All identification taking place through the body which allows conventional interchange and so forth. Or someone comes up to you and accuses you of, of doing something, oh, you're a stupid idiot, whatever it may be. And the mind then responds in another way, what, me? And there's ego, this identification, through that grasping and identification with oneself as being a nice person or whatever it might be, identification with some mode of the mind, the reaction takes place and the me, through that identification, is built up. And it's constantly fluctuating according to the degree of identification with that which is changing. Physically and mentally. Meditation is to see and to be aware of this clearly, clearly, clearly. And of course, even in the seeing, clearly, clearly, the identification sets in with what? You look at the body, there's a seeing of the body, experience, nature, phenomena, etc. There is a seeing of the mental activity, clearly, clearly. Just a thought is a thought, a feeling is a feeling, a mood is a mood, a 
plan is a plan, an imagination is an imagination. There is a seeing of that, but still the identification comes in, how does it come in? As it were, another little stronghold to perpetuate the myth of ego, the myth of self. And the way that's perpetuated is, I see. I see this body is not me. <laughs> I see this mind and all, that, and all that's going on is not me. I do. <laughs> and again, blindness. Again, living with a myth. Meditation is to see truth. Is to see truth. Not for you, not for me, but is to see and know and be with truth. Just as that man two and a half thousand years ago and before and since have engaged in the quest to see and know the truth. And in, and in seeing and know, knowing the truth there is peace. And there is truth which is without measure. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.